Hey everyone, welcome to the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Thank you so much for downloading or streaming this episode, which is part two of my conversation with Freddie Wong. And the first episode was actually last week in which we talked about Video Game High School, which is a 65 million viewed popular video web series and, and well got into his crowdfunding successes on Indiegogo and platforms like Kickstarter. This is a fantastic interview that I'm really happy to finally put online. I know I'm Mark Marin over analyzing this podcast episode, but it's well worth listening because oftentimes podcasts, they create new topics of conversation because they're free flowing and they're long form, but you can't expect where it's going to go. And Freddie is a true professional and allowed this to go in a different direction. So without saying too much about it, I actually, um, I have a camera that I was using to film the show. And like I said, I'm being Mark Marin right now, but, uh, the camera ran out of memory. And so when the memory went out, I, I said to Freddie that my baby, my newborn daughter, is taking up a lot of memory on my camera because I'm taking so many photos and videos. And from there, we talked about the future of media and content, and it was really fascinating. I love the twist that it took. Um, been one of my favorite moments of the podcast so far. I wanted to also give shout-outs to some people that deserve love because this podcast, it takes a lot of people to help it along the way. And each week, I'll be giving out love to people. This week, it's Adam Kovic from Machinima. He's getting love. Matt Perez from HitFix. He's also getting love. And Wacky D, who still uses dial-up internet in the mountains of Colorado, is also getting love. So please find me at InfluencerEconomy.com. You can search for the podcast at Stitcher or iTunes, as well as SoundCloud. We'd love to hear what you think, so please leave a, a note in any of the comments on all those different services. And without further ado, here's part two of Freddie Wong's conversation. <laughs> How did you decide for YouTube after college? Because you went to USC and I took classes there. Yeah. And you get, I took a summer course. It's like the Robert Zemeckis building. Oh, it's the very Akira, old school. Kurosawa oh, soundstage. Yeah, yeah. Even to the point where, and it's funny because I, I occasionally do like little events and stuff back there. And, and it was only this year talking to the incoming freshman class that, that the majority of discussion was about like, I should get my stuff out there and seen online as opposed to, I think up until this point it was, I should get a good short film together and put it in a festival. Like that was the, there was a mindset shift that happened like oh, slowly over the past few years. But like this year was really kind of crystallized and hit a tipping point. Really? Yeah, definitely. Cause my impression was like, because even last year it was like half and half. They're like, yeah, YouTube's kind of cool, I guess. But you know, I want to put together a good short film Yeah, and like go to a festival. It's like really festival. That's crazy. Yeah, sure. Cause uh, in 2013, 2014. Yeah. I mean, it's like if, it, if your short film like enters a festival and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound, <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, but um, Were you ever rejected by festivals? We just never bothered with festivals. You were over it. Because Bernie, when I talked to him, he said that he applied to Sundance oh, yeah, with the yeah. indie film. And he said it took like six months to get the film made, six months to get festivals. And he was like, wait, I do funny videos on the web yeah, yeah. and I can see, millions of people can see them quickly. And, and then also Sundance in invited him with Red versus Blue. So he's like a, it's like the industry embraced him. <laughs> the other him. way around. You know, it's right? like yeah. the industry shuns you and then embraced him, but you came a little bit later than him. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, there was, there was a time sort of 90s was sort of like the hot festival moment 
was that was the, the the pathway to success was getting a getting a thing in Sundance and getting bought up and getting a three picture deal from that and it was a, it was a, it was sort of it was pretty big and sort of like mid nineties was a lot of sort of indie films getting discovered through these things that's this was the time of you know Blair Witch Project and Pie Darren Aronofsky's movies I remember a big one where it was like whoa this was a movie in a festival and he got bought and and that was like a big thing um, yeah and, and and you know I I think for us it was it was we just never saw the appeal of something uh so limited in terms of its in terms of its reach you know and and it just seemed more fun and it made more sense to say let's try and grab let's try and hold on to or or or, or attract an audience first and then with that audience we should be able to do other things and 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 that seemed to be the smarter way to do it and you have an idea of the category of film you wanted to make, uh, I, I you were think, gaming. Yeah, very well, early. we were. It was, a, it was always kind of action and comedy were kind of two things that, that that we always sort of enjoyed, and there was a visual effects component there as well. You know, um, and we were action movie nerds. What are the video game high school? What are the like? What are the influences that you're drawing in? And it, actually, I'd love it if you could explain it to my friends from college. Okay. What the <laughs> plot is, because I don't want to simplify it by saying it's Harry Potter for video games because it's much, much deeper. That's the easy way I, I think of, of doing it. We even use that one. Um, Harry Potter or Glee, but instead of like singing, you're uh, duking it out in the first person shooter. Okay, so the, the basic conceit is, all right, imagine our universe, but instead of like football being as huge as it is, it's or soccer in the rest of the world, it's professional video gaming. And okay, so if you're a professional video gamer, your peak years are going to be the ages of 19 through 21 because that's when your reflexes are at their at their finest and their sharpest. So therefore, to get trained up for it, <laughs> you need to go to school for it. So gonna be, and and, and hilariously, by the way, there are there's something like this in Korea. It's much less glamorous as we depict it, but but there definitely is our pro gaming academies. For StarCraft. For StarCraft and, and, and League of Legends. And, and you start in high school age. So high schools are designed around training kids up to become uh, professional video game players. Okay, so they're trying to train up. and then Okay, so that's the universe. Um, and then it, from there, it's a very sort of conventional fish out of the water. Uh, he gets, you know, our main character, Brian, gets, gets invited to the school because he lands, uh, he lands a totally lucky shot in a public match against one of the school's top players, which, of course, attracts the ire of said player, the law. And he gets in there, and it's, it's basically a high school drama, like a high school type of show, but with the conflicts played out in photorealistic video games. Is it like say by the bell with video games? <laughs> um, I, I think I like to think that our uh, I think that our uh, uh, um, our uh, dilemmas maybe Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> I think our dilemmas are, and and conflicts are a little bit a little bit better than that, especially you know, especially this season goes on because it gets weird. And anyway, it's it's a fun. It's definitely. I guess what what comes down to is a lot of people hoped and expected us to make a show about video games that took video games like super seriously. Like it was really interesting kind of talking to some people who were like, yeah, I just you know I thought that you guys you know the concept was cool but i wish you guys did something else with it and, and and what something else means a lot of times is like a more serious gritty take on like how cool would this be and like to us i guess growing up in our in our attitude towards video games it's like no this wouldn't be cool this is weird and hilarious and this is almost a joke and so we love the concept in the universe but we kind of have a lot of fun with it and it's not like because we, we joke around sometimes where we're like we should make hardcore gamer academy which is like the show everyone kind of like hoped video game high school would be or because uh -huh. it's like yeah it's like video games the most important thing in the world it's <laughs> hardcore it's and life. you 
train and it's like all desaturated and like and like really dramatically lit as opposed to a kind of like fun cartoony sort of depiction of that which is i think a much more, a lot more fun to do anyway i'd love for you to explain like the business of the indiegogo oh yeah because i come into your office and you've got a whole team of people and you have production you have editing you have like fulfilling the rewards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Indiegogo is uh, or the Kickstarters because the first Kickstarter you did it broke massive records. And then it was it was funny actually we have we have a pattern of this. First Kickstarter we did broke. Uh, it was before anyone knew what Kickstarter was. This was in November 2011, and it broke a bunch of records for for web series and things like that. And then like the moment it was done, all the video game Kickstarters happened, and everyone's just like Kickstarter, a place for video games. We're like ah darn it. And then the second one we broke more records. And then the moment it finished, the Veronica Mars movie came out. Oh, no way. It was funny. It was, it was for like one week, the most funded film and video project. Oh, no way. Veronica Mars Oh, God damn. It was incredible. Big production um, just beat you. Yeah, we got destroyed. Um, but uh, but it's okay. We have what we need to make. Screw them. We have what we need no, to I'm make our thing. Uh, so so it's, kind of a, it's kind of interesting because Kickstarter, it's always been a, for, for us at least, it's always been a component of a larger financing situation. It's, you know, we, we, if we can't depend 100% on Kickstarter. And we make that clear because, you know, every single season we're put, we put out, like, how much did this season cost? And here's where all the money went. And this is how much it costs to cater and have food for everybody. And this is what your cast costs. And this is your location costs in L.A., which are insane. And actually, it turns out, look, look 25%, 30% of everything that we made just goes straight to shipping and manufacturing T-shirts and, and things like that. Um, so we were very transparent with that. And we put everything up on our site, rocketjump.com. Oh, you did? Like the margins of exactly. cost? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the, the, the caveat to that is we, you know, because it's our friends and crew members, we don't go down to the level of like, here's how much we paid each individual actor because, you know, there's privacy. But and, you have some transparency. But we say, here's what, how much a crew costs total. Here's how much the cast costs to have in there total. Here's what the, uh, yeah, exactly. Everything, stunts, location fees, um, costumes, uh, post-production, editing, visual effects. How much does it cost? Because people don't have any, any idea of it. They look at something and they're like, I think the problem is, and this is a very something that's, that's, that's an issue with trying to fund films, is like people are like, a million bucks? Like, psh, you got a million dollars. You guys are, you guys should just, you don't need anything. You guys are done. You guys can do whatever you want. But anybody who, anybody who's sort of like film nerds or who understand that, like if I say I had a budget of a million dollars to say, psh, that's a low budget yeah. affair. You know? Yeah. And, and the layperson is like, what? A million dollars? I've never even, that's, I can't even conceive of that. You know? It's considered an indie film. If you're yeah. a million bucks, yeah, a million dollars is a joke in terms of how much, uh, how much it costs. And then he's just like, well, why is that? It's like, well, if you think about it, it's like you're employing 200 people for the course of six months. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, all right, eh, and it costs this much to get all this stuff together and the fees and all that. So it makes sense after you sort of think about it. But there is no resource out there that tells people how much this stuff costs. As far as they know, it's a million dollars, you know, and, and, you know, you'll know how much of that goes into physical production. A lot of times you hear about, oh yeah, it was a $300 million blockbuster. It's like, well, okay, how much did they spend on this? How much do you think was just the actor's fees? Who knows? Nobody knows. And how do you, know? you fulfill all this? Like how many team members do you have putting? So we have, um, we have sort of our merchandise sort of crew and our, our department over there. And it depends, you know, flexes depending on like if we need to ship a lot of things or not, but we have, you know, a sort of merchandise department. I guess that's the side of things that people don't really get. And that's the, the, the draw back of being personable and, and, and relatable is that 
a lot of times you don't necessarily, and I think Rooster Teeth actually uh, dodges this very well, not dodges, but they've over the course of many years managed to establish this very well, which is it's not just one person there. And I think we still have, are trying to shed that perception from us, which is like, it's not just me here, as you saw out there, it's a lot of people working and it's like, that costs a lot to support. There's a lot of infrastructure here and to do what we want to do. And it's a perception of like, well, you you got all this money on Kickstarter, you're done. It's like, no, there's yeah, a lot of people. You can't retire. No, no, there's a lot of people working here, and there's a lot of people uh, who who contribute to doing and putting out what what we do. And like, how many? What do you call this then? Is it media company or? Uh? It would be. I think it'd be. It's just almost a studio. It's not quite a studio. It's kind of a media company. It kind of is trying to. We're trying to do content of our own. So in that way, it's kind of like a studio. But I think a, uh, I think of it as like a studio in the age of the internet and mm-hmm. taking advantage of what that affords. And how many people do you have working in the office now? So right now, uh, it's, um, myself and the, uh, about 15. And you've taken no outside funding. It's- uh, no, we, we are, yeah, we are still 100% owned and operated ourselves. And you know, I think, I think to be, you know, to be perfectly transparent to perfectly honest, I think part of the equation of growth is to take on outside funding for a portion, uh, of the company, you know, and I think that mm-hmm. that's a, but, but, you know, I, I'm not interested right now in, at all in a lot of what's happening right now in this, in the space, which is a lot of these companies are building themselves up, acquiring a roster of talent and then selling themselves. Like Machinima was, that's what we did there. Is yeah. Not, it becomes an advertising network. Right, right, Less right. Less of a community. And yeah, and well, I think what it comes down to is like, what do, what do you want to do? And I think in in, those, in the cases of like you know, Machinima uh, or, or Maker, it is to aggregate content to sell advertising, and it's not create content. For us, our goal is very simple: it is create good content, create stuff that we can believe in, and keep doing that, and do whatever it takes to keep doing that. Our our goal is not to sign on a bunch of people to inflate our. And this is always the funniest thing to me about you know these things, where it was like. I, I think Machinima would come out a lot of times and be like, we have a billion subscribers yeah. or whatever. It's like, how many of those is, it's like you, you literally are taking two channels, like take all your yeah. channels, take the subscriber number and add them up. It's like, how much of that's overlap? How much, that's the same person, how much of that's the same person like, being counted eight times because yeah. they're subscribed to three different, you know, eight different things. It's like, no, nah, no, nah, let's not think about that. Because right now it's very much a game of inflate yourself, make yourself look valuable and then get bought out. Our end goal is not to get bought out. Our end goal is to continue making content because that's why we got into filmmaking. We're not, we're not, you know, uh, turning and burning business major types who are, you know, trying to just build up a company and, and get rid of it. You know, if, if we were, I took the wrong major and I probably went to the wrong, well, no, probably not the right, probably the right school. USC is a good business school, but definitely did the wrong major for that. Um, for us, our interest is being filmmakers and being able to take advantage of this sort of very unique time in cinema history where we as a filmmaker, as a creator, have direct audience to consumer. You know, you look at the history, last 100 years, 120 years of film, it's all whoever, you make it, and then you have to find distribution, and you have to, and, and distribution's controlled by this company, and, you know, things like that. But there's always middlemen. There's always middlemen since, since you know, since the studio system, right? So it's like, you, you couldn't just make something, you needed someone else to give you the money to make something. Uh, whereas now, it's like, no, we don't, we don't need that middleman as much anymore, uh, in terms of getting our content out there and getting it seen. You know, it, it's not a relationship where we need them. It's a relationship where we can use them to be, to expand our scope. That's interesting. And that actually, that was a great answer because it segues into my next question. Sure. Which is, I remember when I was at Machinima, you did something with John Favreau. Oh, Carsville. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. I have like, I said a baby, so I have way too much <laughs> footage. Just photos and footage. Oh yeah, my God, yeah. I have no idea. Um, so if I, uh, this is, is going to be the first generation that is completely digitally documented. 
Oh yeah. Step of the way. Now here's what's interesting to me, right? Because the fallibility, sorry, not to deviate, but this is something I think about a lot. The fallibility of storage media by its very nature, especially flash drives and CD-ROMs even and hard drives are, they will fail mm-hmm. and they will disappear. And a lot of this stuff is stored on home computers, which as you know, if you've ever looked back at a hard drive or a CD you've burned 10 years ago, doesn't exist anymore, or you can't figure out a way of opening it. You don't have the password. You don't have the password, whatever. So a lot of that stuff's gonna be lost. And a lot of the stuff is up on, you know, I think basically on Facebook servers. Which is you know stored in the cloud and has a little more thing. But let's say let's say Facebook disappears, an entire generation of visual record will be lost. Mm-hmm. And we have photographs, and photographs as a printed medium can last you know 120 years, 100 years or so. So that's okay. So I still have photographs myself in the youth. But if every photo we take of somebody of our kids is digital, and all the things that we do are printing them out in inject, inject printers onto non-archival paper, which will disappear in 20 years and fade out in like 30 years, there's a I think there's a chance that we will get that we will have an entire generation that will not have photos of themselves when they're younger. Like we will have lost a visual record of the time period between 2005 and, you know, I don't know. I I actually disagree. I look at it the opposite way. Yeah. I've taken more photos of my daughter in six months than I have in my whole lifetime. But where have you stored those photos? Dropbox, Facebook, YouTube. I put up every video from my iPhone directly. I do have thumb drives and hard drives that I'll lose in years. But see, I'm not, here's, here's my point. I guess you know what it is? It's, here's what it is. We've entrusted our Instagram, visual memory. We've Instagram. In, we've entrusted our visual memory not to photo albums and things that we own, but to other companies and computers in other parts of True. the world. Right. I'm hoping YouTube and Google don't go out of business because I think virtually I'm storing things, I hope, in a diverse way. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, But I, mean, I have, like, my parents have very few photos of me as a kid under two years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've taken a billion more of my daughter already yeah, yeah. in six months. Cause that's, that's the question, right? It's like in exactly it's, it's, you have, we have a greater visual record, but it's, it's at no other point in history been more out of our hands. And it's an well, Apple, Google, right. Facebook, right? The, we've, we've entrusted, we've entrusted our these visual big corporations to the fortune 500. <laughs> yeah. We've sold out our whole life. Yeah. And that's what those companies are billions and billions of dollars on Wall like, Street. Like for example, how hardcore would it be if in 20 years, like Facebook turns around and says, oh, you want to access all your old photos? Yeah, pay a monthly subscription fee for that. They would totally kill it. If you want to download your photos, yeah. I would pay a lot of money for them. Yeah. Because I have my life on that. That's why, I, but Facebook I post less on. Yeah. Instagram I post a lot on. Uh, it sort of goes in trends. That's why Snapchat's the way to go. <laughs> yeah. Because you know it's going away. Yeah. You you embrace the ephemeral <laughs> nature of, yes. of the visual medium. No, that's fair. It's very philosophical. It's very no, sad. I love that. I mean, this is what I think about. Yeah. Because I'm like looking at my daughter and I can like take 10 photos and edit them and yeah. add filters and delete the ones that Here's are terrible. Here's what I can't wait for. Here's what I cannot wait for. I can't wait for in hospitals, the moment that a child is born, the naming service also offers to register every social media account and Gmail account for that for that uh, new individual. It's like, oh, got Get a new kid. Twitter username. It's like, you want, uh, what's your name? As you write on the birth certificate, yeah. as you enter the birth certificate into the tablet computer that is in, in the room, it'll say, by the way, these usernames are available. We, Would we, you like to reserve them now for... We can't get Peter... Williams, yeah. my, my future son on Twitter, but we can get at Peter R. Williams. Yeah, right. At Peter R. Will. Or does he have a nickname yet? Well, here's the thing, isn't that, and here's the, anyway, I can't wait to see how that plays out in terms of the naming, the, the naming that we give ourselves. Because at a certain point, it's going to reach a saturation level where it's like, I don't want Freddie Wong 8943. It's like, nah, yeah. I want something unique. But how much you, yeah, anyway. I got Julia Williams at G- Gmail oh. for my daughter. 
And so I keep CCing. That's like the best birthday gift. And it's such a common name. Yeah. And so I keep CCing my family and no one's noticed <laughs> <laughs> that my daughter is going to have these emails in her inbox yeah. when she starts using Google Mail, which is a frightening thing that I'm oh, yeah, giving yeah. Google access to my daughter's life when she's two months old. Yeah. Eventually. It's an event. It's a, it's a down. But it's an unfortunate thing. A big brother is not the government. Yeah. We, I mean, the NSA obviously has proved that wrong in some ways, <laughs> but we watched big, you know, the movie or the, uh, the book in 1984. Yeah. You know, Orwell thought the, the government. government was going to look over us. Oh, it's, it's corporations. Silicon Valley. Yeah. It is big media companies. Yeah. I'm sorry. We got so sidetracked. No, that's great though, because my next question has nothing to do with this. Okay, good. Um, and I saw the John Favreau video you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When I was at Machinima and I was like, this is cool. And I think there's a fine line between like organic people pitching you mm -hmm. to make videos that are cool that help you as yeah. grow as an artist and creator. And then you have abilities to monetize. And you yeah. guys have worked with a lot of video game companies. We have, yeah. And how do you explain the phenomenon of working with a brand that your audience is cool with you working with? I think it's very basic. I think what it comes down to is it comes down to the content. And if the content is kind of crappy and I'm, you know, we, we've been guilty of this, you know, I'm not going to hide behind that. We've done some promotions where we're like, yeah, the video wasn't as not that good. Then people don't like that because it's like, not only is it not that good, you're also promoting something else and you're intruding on my sort of viewing experience with something that's kind of crappy and a brand that I had no interest in. And now it's being presented to me and I don't care. That's annoying. Uh, but yeah, you know, we look at like energy drink companies, right? It's like Red Bull, like Red Bull can do essentially no wrong. Like they can just throw their logo everywhere and nobody's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Else. They drop someone from the stratosphere right, exactly. of the earth. That's cool. We're like that's, that's the awesomest thing ever. Cool, right? yeah. So that's, that's what it is. The content's cool. And it's like, nobody's sitting there being like, well, yeah, he jumped from the, he did broke a record free fall, you know, Felix, but yeah, it's like, whatever. He's sold out. It's like, nobody's saying no, that. No, nobody's that guy's that a badass. Ever. Yeah, exactly. And so, it has to do with trying to, it's trying to, what a sellout. Yeah, what a sellout, dude. You saw all the Red Bull logos all over that. What a loser. Yeah. Nobody said that. But, but the whole point was, the whole point is the content. And if the content is something that's interesting and it's something that's engaging and it's like cool. Uh, and, and a lot of times, you know, we, we, what we try and position as is like, is cooler than it would have been otherwise. You know, for a lot of stuff we do, it's like, yeah, we need money if we want to flip this car or blow this thing up. You know, it's like the costs, you know, just permitting and, and all that. And, and, and just the sheer cost of doing, you know, stunts and things like that. And it's like, well, okay, if the brand steps in and enables us to do that, that's a much better, I think you can get away with it in terms of just being like, look, yes, there's a trade-off. We all understand there's a trade-off because we all understand things cost money in this world, you know? And so it takes a long time to build an audience. And what advice would you have for someone to make money in online video at this point? And it's, it's tough. It's a it's long tough. game. It is. It's a long game. It's, uh, but I think you have to stick to fundamentals. I think that a lot of times, you know, we get, we get questions like, Oh, what kind of video should I make? It's like, dude, I don't know. Like uh, the videos that I made back when I started wouldn't work now because there's a lot more people doing it. And if what you make is, is fundamentally quality and fundamentally good and appealing, then that that's where you start. That's what you think about. It's not about what to do. It's about how do you do something well? And in terms of like money and in terms of like monetization, it's like, yes, you can try and chase whatever the, you know, I remember for a while, like in, like in high school, there were sites that would pay you to click on banner ads and you can make money that way. It's like, yeah, those, but what you really should be thinking about is like, are you, are you attracting an audience? Are you talking to people? Are you, are you engaging people? And who knows how you monetize off of that? Like we didn't 
build an audience with the idea of like, hey, and here's what we'll do. When Kickstarter comes around in the next two years, <laughs> we'll use that. And then it's like, no, no, we, we had no idea what Kickstarter was. But Kickstarter with an audience in place, when it showed up, we said, oh, this is something that could work for us. And here's how we can make this work for us. And it wasn't an idea of looking forward and, and, and trying to anticipate what comes down the line and how we can do what, you know, what we're doing now for that it is just fundamentally, we don't know how it's, how, how we can make money off of this. We do know that having an audience who likes what you do is a very powerful thing. And I have no idea if you even can make money off of that or what that enables you to do. What, you know, at the time it was like, well, okay, but we know we want that. And so that's the goal. Okay. That's a great way to end. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And, uh, I'll, I have your number now. Yes. Yes. Stop calling that other guy. Wong Freddy will no longer be uh, annoyed. <laughs> he might. He might still.